All right, how many parents in the room? Big kids, young kids, doesn't matter. How many parents in the room? All right, great. As a parent, have you ever said something like this? I want the whole story. <laughs> or maybe, maybe, maybe it's more like this. That's not the whole story. Ever said something like that? You know, we, kids and adults alike, we tend to f- say something, relate a story in a way that makes us look good or in a way that avoids making us look bad. Am I right? And a lot of times when you're trying to figure out, especially with, with, with kids and siblings, you're trying to figure out what exactly happened because something happened because something always happens. And you know you're only getting part of the story and you're looking for the whole story. I want that word whole, W-H-O-L-E, not H-O-L-E. We're not digging a hole. We're looking for the whole. I want that word whole to be at the forefront of your minds as we consider the scriptures this morning. And that word, you probably know, it means complete. It means full. It means the entire. And that's what I'm going for. But I also want it to mean this in your minds. I want it to mean Healthy. Healthy. The book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the reason it's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament is because it, it kind of has the appearance that James is jumping from topic to topic. If you read through the book of James, he starts out talking about perseverance and trials. He starts talking, he ends up talking about the tongue. He talks about different kinds of wisdom. And it seems almost like he's jumping around on topics, kind of like the book of Proverbs does. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you'll know that Solomon has, is, is writing kind of these, these snippets that, uh, that give a grain of truth, and sometimes they're contrasting the foolish man from the wise man. Sometimes they're talking about the improper uses of the tongue. Sometimes they're talking about uh, foolish ways with money. He just kind of bounces around from topic to topic, and you kind of get that same sense when you read the book of James, and so it's been labeled the Proverbs of the New Testament. But the book of James does have a central theme, and it has to do with spiritual wholeness. James is writing, his, his original audience was Jewish by nature. They were, he called them the, the dispersion in James chapter one. They had been dispersed from wherever they were and they were across the land and he's writing them this letter of encouragement and what he's after is their spiritual wholeness. He says, I want you to be spiritually whole and the, the different topics that he deals with in his letter are what he wants them to deal with in order to achieve that spiritual wholeness. In fact, Douglas Moo, who um, wrote a commentary on the book of James, he puts it this way. He says, basic to all that James says in his letter is his concern that his readers stop compromising with worldly values and behavior and give themselves wholly to the Lord. Spiritual wholeness, then, we suggest, is the central concern of the letter. And I think he's right. James is after spiritual wholeness. He's after spiritual healthiness. He he wants his audience, and that includes us 2,000 years later, to be complete, to be full, to be spiritually healthy. That's what James is after. And to just give you just a small bit of background, the first 18 verses of James chapter 1 deal with perseverance and trials. That's the famous verse that starts out, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. And we stop and think, why would we consider trials joy? 
The whole point is that he wants you to experience this trial that God's bringing into your life because it will result in spiritual wholeness, spiritual growth, in completion, and spiritual health. And that's one of the things that James points out. And then when we hit verse 19, where we begin our passage this morning, he makes a transition and he shifts from the idea of perseverance in trials and he gives us some pictures of what a spiritually whole person looks like. And that's what I want to give you this morning is three ways in which a spiritual whole person looks. Three ideas of how a spiritual person looks. We're going after spiritual wholeness. And this is three ways that we can achieve that in our lives. So join me if you will. We're in James chapter 1 and I'm going to read verse 19 and 20. He writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How does a spiritually whole person look? Well, here's one way. Number one in your notes. A spiritually whole person controls anger and responds appropriately. A spiritually whole person controls anger and responds appropriately. James encourages his readers. He says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. Now, those three things, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, those things would be things that his Jewish audience would be very familiar with because in their Jewish culture, they were raised up. There's almost like this this combination of slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to hearing built within their congregation, built within their culture, built within the Old Testament. And let me point out three verses that demonstrate this. Proverbs seventeen twenty eight says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs ten nineteen reads, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And Proverbs 17, 27 reads, whoever restrains his lips has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So wrapped up within the Jewish culture, within this mindset is this idea of quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to, slow to anger. There's a combination of having a cool head, an open ear and a careful tongue, a cool head, an open ear and a careful tongue tongue and James is encouraging his audience rein in those emotions listen and respond appropriately because that's what a spiritually whole person does here's a truth God wants to teach you something I believe every single day God wants to teach you something I don't believe a day goes by where God just says you know what you're good for today I don't believe that happens God wants to teach you something and God will use his word God will use other forms throughout the world. God will use his people. He wants to teach you something and he wants you to be a spiritually whole person and listen to whatever that is God is trying to teach you. And sometimes that's hard because sometimes when we hear a hard truth that God wants us to learn, we can be quick to speak and argue ourselves out of it. We can be quick to anger and respond negatively to something that God wants us to do in our lives. But James is saying, listen, be quiet, control those emotions, practice 
self-control. And self-control, you might know, is a theme throughout the Bible. Paul talks about it a lot as as having self-control. He often challenges his readers to have self-control. That is a big theme throughout the Bible. And that's something, in fact, the Bible's very redundant. Did you know that? The Bible's very redundant. It, It proclaims the same message, but that is good because that means the Bible is consistent. James is saying it here. He might be saying it a different way, but he's saying the same thing here. Have self-control. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit that reigning in our emotions is hard. Would you agree with that? It is hard. It's like restraining the wind. And we know something about wind here in central Illinois. Do we not? Just this past week, our family went to Bloomington, and of course, we passed by all the wind turbines, and my youngest boy, three years old, he calls them windmills, and he loves them. He gets real excited about that. Why are they there? Because we're trying to harness the power of the wind, and I don't want to get into the debates of whether that's beneficial or not, but they're trying to harness the power of the wind. Why? Because we know something about wind. We've got wind. There's no lack of it. We call Chicago the windy city. If I was to take a big parachute, and go out in a field and stretch it out to try to contain the wind, it's just going to drag me, isn't it? I can't contain the wind. And that's the way sometimes I feel like containing my emotions is like, how am I supposed to do that? How do we rein in our emotions? We know emotion is a result of thinking. Did you know that? Our emotion is a result of our thinking process. What you think and how you think channel the way you feel. For the last several weeks in our small group, we've been going through a book called God is More Than Enough by Jim Berg. And he points out this, the way we feel, the way we, why we feel what we feel is due to the way we think. And he writes in his book, if we're going to quiet the noise in our souls, that's what we're after, quieting, that's what he's after in his book, quieting the noise of your soul. If we're going to quiet the noise in our souls, we will have to track our thinking, not our feelings. And then we must evaluate those thoughts against the word of God. Where our thoughts are wrong, we must repent of them and replace them with thoughts that honor God. We must know, therefore, that wrong kind of, th- of thoughts We want us to know what the wrong kind of thoughts look like and face them biblically. Our emotions are generated by our thinking. Receive thought, respond with emotion. Receive thought, it creates emotion. Receive thought, creates emotion. And this can be a positive thing and it can also be a negative thing. Right thoughts produce right feelings. Wrong thoughts produce wrong feelings and oftentimes lead to our emotions being out of control. And I'm not suggesting that when you receive a piece of bad news and you respond in shock or you respond in grief, I'm not saying that's bad. That's, that's the way we're built. And a lot of times that's an appropriate response, whatever the news we might be, seeing, say, we might be receiving. What I want to point out is when we are thinking wrongly, thinking wrongly about God, thinking wrongly about people, and that generates within us wrong bad, negative, or out-of-control emotions. Those are the things that we need to deal with. 2 Corinthians 10.5 reads, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to obey Christ. 
every thought captive. How am I supposed to reign in these emotions? Well, if my emotions are generated by my thinking, then I need to take my thoughts captive. I need to be sure that every thought is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, the thought of taking every thought captive is beyond overwhelming. How many thoughts does the human mind have in one day? I have no idea. I probably could have looked that up, but it was too overwhelming to look up, so I didn't. So my sitting here telling you that every single one of those thoughts, the, the thousands upon thousands that we receive a day, need to be taken captive? Let me break this down even further for you. When you find yourself thinking wrongly, wrongly about God, and we're tempted to every single day, we're tempted to think things like God is not good. God is not enough. God is not sufficient. God is not loving me. Those are the thoughts we need to take captive. When a brother or sister points out behavior in our life and we realize that behavior is because of some wrong thinking, we need to capture that thought. When we're reading God's word and God reveals something to us in our thought life that has been negative, something that has been wrong thinking, we need to capture that. We need to capture these thoughts. Again, I'll admit to you it's not easy, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we capture these thoughts to help rein in our emotions because that's what the spiritually whole person does. Perhaps this might help you. Colossians 3, 2 and 3 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Of that verse, John Piper says, fill your mind with the truth of heaven. You want to capture thoughts? Fill your mind with the truth of heaven. Fill your mind with the truth of heaven. This is why we, we, we strongly encourage the reading of God's word and the attending of small group and the different things that, that we believe in and support because we want our minds to be focused on the things above, not on the things of earth. You want right emotions? You want good emotions? You want healthy emotions? We got to set the minds on the things above. And that helps to control the emotions. So it's not like restraining the wind. It's possible by the help of the Spirit. Wrong thinking leads to wrong emotions. And James points out here that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now you might stop and think, well, wait a minute. Isn't there a time to be angry? Yes. Isn't there a righteous anger? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what righteous anger is? Righteous anger is getting angry over the things that God is angry about. Righteous anger is not getting angry because Ryan Jackson is inconvenienced. It's easy, but it's not righteous. Righteous anger is getting angry over the things God is angry about. So when you're watching the news and you're seeing the depravity of man and it makes you angry, that's good. Now don't smash your TV because that's sinning in your anger. But when you see sin in this world and it makes you angry, that's a good, that's something that God gets angry about. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Even James says here, be slow to anger, not don't get angry at all. And there definitely is a difference. But even in our righteous anger, we'd be careful with what we do with that because it's so easy to take righteous anger and make it unrighteous anger. 
We take captive those thoughts in obedience to Christ. A spiritually whole person controls anger and responds accordingly. Now I want to point out, not perfectly, we are increasingly, as we say here in Harvest, we are increasingly moving toward righteousness. Increasingly moving toward righteousness. This is going to, this is a, a, throughout our lives. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and be perfect, but we're going to strive for that. We're going to increasingly strive for righteousness as God reveals sin. We capture that thought, we confess it, and we move toward righteousness. So what else does the spiritually whole person do? Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Number two, a spiritually whole person removes sin and submits to scripture. A spiritually whole person removes sin and submits to scripture. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, there's some awesome Greek going on here, so I, w- I want to dive into this. Are you ready? The word for put away is the word apatithemi. In fact, why don't you say that with me? Apatithemi. Very good. You know Greek. Apatithemi. It literally means to take off, to put aside, to remove. It's the exact same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.22 when he tells us, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Apatithemi, put off. The word, think of it as clothing. It literally means take off. Remove the bad. Remove the stinky, the torn, the dirty clothing. Remove the wickedness. Remove the sinfulness. Remove the part of you that you detest. You've got to remove it but you can't stop there. We can't just remove the wickedness. We've got to put something on. We take off the old self and the old behavior and we put on the new self created in the likeness of God. James says it this way, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's the putting off and receive. That's the putting on with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. You got to get rid of the bad. We got to renounce that, confess that. But then we've got to cling, we've got to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, I want to point out, this is not a command for unbelievers to become believers, okay? I want to point that out. We could be very easily make that mistake. It's not a command for, for unbelievers to become believers. It's a command for believers to receive the word, God's word, and let it influence their lives. Douglas Moo writes this. James reminds us that we need to be open and receptive to the work of the word in the heart. We need to be open and receptive to the work of the word in our heart. Have you ever met a spiritually stagnant Christian? You ever met somebody who you know, maybe they were on fire for Christ early in life, did some growing, and they just kind of hit a place in their sanctification, they just plateaued. You ever met anybody like that? I, I have. Let me take it a, a step further. Have you ever been that person? Maybe going through a tough season of life, maybe going through something that you just kind of started going through the motions of Christianity and the growth just became 
stagnant. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. We don't want to be the stagnant Christian. Maybe some of you are dealing with that right now, and if you are, I'll pray for you. It can be hard. The gos- in the Gospels, Jesus uses the picture of fertile soil to represent a heart that is receptive to the work of God. That's the heart that we want. And if you find yourself in that position of stagnation, we need to pray. You need to pray for God to do the work in your heart to make it fertile again. Is your heart receptive to God's work? And if, I would ask, if it's not, why not? Sometimes life becomes hard and we just, to pull out, we just go through the motions. And there's no real growth. And that is the heart of a person who is not spiritually whole. And we want to strive towards spiritual wholeness. So a spiritually whole person controls anger and responds appropriately. A spiritually whole person removes sin and submits to scripture. Finally, number three, a spiritually whole person is honest with self and action-based. They are honest with self and action-based. Look at verse 22 with me. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now in this passage, James is contrasting the one who looks at his face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets about it with the one who looks at his face and does something about it. Let Let me just ask you this question. If you woke up tomorrow morning and you looked in the mirror and there was this green oozy splotch on your face, would you do something about it? Some of you might try to, you know, pop it. We won't go too far there. Others of you might call a doctor and say, I need to get something's wrong here. Others of you who don't like doctors, you might throw hydrogen peroxide on it or at the very least duct tape. I don't know. But you would do something about it, minimally or not so minimally. You would do something about it. James is saying, he's using the analogy of a mirror to say that that's what God's word is like. It's like a mirror for our souls revealing to us that something is wrong and something needs to be changed. You might ask yourself, did they have mirrors back then? They had polished metal. That's a lot of times what they would use was just polished metal. They're not the nice, clean, perfect images that we have today. If you think of it this way, back then they had standard definition. Now we have 4K. That's the way the mirrors worked back then. But that regardless, the mirrors back then were to point out, what he's using the mirror's analogy to point out the sin in our lives. That's what God's word does. It points out the sin in our lives, and it's meant to point out in such a way that we see that and recognize there's a problem, and this needs to be removed. And the first person that James talks about is the one who sees that there's an issue, but ignores it, or even goes worse. He says that be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we hear there's a problem, we see there's a problem, sometimes we're tempted to just deceive ourselves. Sometimes we're tempted to just talk our way out of it. I don't need that. Maybe that's an issue, but you know what? It's not that big a deal. It's kind of having that attitude of, 
I'll get to that later. Or, okay, maybe there's something about, but you know what? I've got other things to do. And then they walk away and they don't give it a second thought. Kurt Richardson, in his commentary on James, he says, to be a hearer or to have faith only is self-deceiving. Faith must be demonstrated. And to miss this is a fundamental flaw in understanding. No one who is called upon God for wisdom can or should think undemonstrated faith is true. Our faith will have action if it's real faith. This is not just true for Christianity, by the way. This is true for real life. If you believe that running blindly down a highway is a bad idea, then you're not going to do it. Faith, action. In Christianity, it's the same way. When God's word reveals something to me, I act accordingly. Similarly, Douglas Moo writes this, for God's, for God's word cannot be divided into parts. If one wants the benefits of its saving power, one must also embrace it as a guide for life. Verse 25 reads, but, if, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James introduced this with the, with the image of the mirror, and then he goes and he, said, he calls it the law of liberty. He says it for what it is. The Bible, the law of liberty, the mirror, is what we look into to see that something is wrong and needs to be changed. And by the way, he calls it the law of liberty. God's word, the law of liberty. When we see what needs to be changed and we make the change, that is freeing. And oftentimes we don't want to change because change is painful. Change is hard. And sometimes I like who I am. I'm fine who I am. I'm, I'm good enough. And I don't want to take those extra steps of pain. That James says, but it's liberating. It's freeing. That's what God's word is. It's freeing. The pain might be, the, the change might be painful, true, but it's liberating. Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. A spiritually whole person is honest with self and action. He says there at the end of verse 25, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. God blesses our action. God blesses our attempts to embrace righteousness and forsake sin. God blesses our attempts to fight the temptation, to rid ourselves of sin and to cling to righteousness. And you might ask, what does that blessing look like? What does that look like? Money, bigger house, you know the answer. No, no. Those things are great, and God does bless us with those things from time to time, but those things are fleeting. The blessing of God here is the knowledge that I am right with my Savior. The blessing is the clear conscience. It's the understanding that I've been forgiven of sin. God is pleased. That's the blessing. And that is a blessing that goes beyond anything material. 
Kurt Richardson, again, says, For to know one's purpose is, as creature of God, is itself blessedness. This is the result of the freedom brought by the law of God. Now, the last thing I want you to walk away with is a sense of legalism, okay? That could very easily become a, a, a conclusion to, to this type of passage that I just need to muscle my way through and to do the good things and check that off my list. And that's not what I want you to walk away with is a sense of legalism. We're not talking about works-based Christianity. We know, that our, we know that our salvation cannot be earned by works. Do you know that? Our salvation cannot be earned by works, but our sanctification can also not be earned by works. It's done within the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not done in my own power. If I wake up tomorrow and try to muscle my way through and try to do good in my own strength, I'm going to fail. That won't be blessed by God. I don't want you walking away with a sense that I got to wake up tomorrow and I got to just do harder and try harder. No, I want you to wake up tomorrow, submit to the scriptures, submit to the spirit and let him do the work inside of you. Recognize what needs to be changed. Pray against that. And let's do what's right. That's what I want you to walk away. I'll conclude with this story. You may have heard of a man named William Wilberforce. He was among those responsible for the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 in the British Empire. And there's a story of how he came to make the decision to do this. He was weighing whether he wanted to take up the gauntlet and fight for the liberation of slavery. And he knew that was going to be a hard fight, possibly an impossible one. But on May the 12th of 1787, being still hesitant, he had a conversation with a man named William Pitt, who was also a permanent British statesman, and a man named William Grenville, who was to be the future prime minister. They sat under this large oak tree that later became known as Wilberforce Oak. And William Pitt was challenging Wilberforce, and he said, Wilberforce, why don't you give notice to a, of, a no, of a motion on the subject of slave trade? You have already taken great pains to collect evidence and are therefore fully entitled to the credit which doing so will ensure you. Do not lose time or the ground will be occupied by another. Now, what's interesting is that Wilberforce's response is not recorded, but later, while he, when he was old, he said that he distinctly remembered the very hill on which he was sitting with them, with William Pitt and, and Grenville, when he made that decision. All right, let's do this. He collected the evidence he saw that something needed to be changed and he did something about it. And that's my challenge to you, Harvest Decatur. Do you want to be a spiritually whole person? Do you want to be a spiritually whole person? That's my challenge to you this morning. A spiritually whole person controls anger and responds appropriately. A spiritually whole person removes sin and submits to scripture and a spiritually whole person is honest with self and action-based. That's my challenge, not just to you, my challenge to myself as we fight in this life for spiritual wholeness until Christ comes back. Amen? Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you love us and that you've given us everything we need. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. Lord, we know that 
You desire spiritual wholeness in each and every one of us, Lord Jesus. And that is a hard road, but you've given us what we need for that. I need it. Those in this room need it. We long to continue to grow. And we pray and ask for your help in those areas that we talked about. We pray and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us to see what needs to be changed and to have the boldness to change that by the power of your spirit. Help us to lean on you to do what is right. You are God. You are in control. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.